All right, boys and girls, welcome back to History, Politics, and Beer. Um, I'm glad you survived the last two weeks. We hit some controversial topics there with abortion part one and part two. We're glad you made it through, and feel free to throw us a line, Twitter, Facebook, email, all that stuff. Let us know what you think. Uh, feel free to, we'd love for you to go to iTunes and leave uh, a comment on iTunes and rate us on iTunes. Um, that would be superific. And of course, you know the routine by now. We do the little intro and then it's beer time. So as I set this up, I look across the table and I'm seeing a variety pack. And the, what it reminds me of, and I don't know, Hud, if you had this memory as a child, but when we used to go on vacation to the beach, my mom would buy the variety pack of cereals where you had the little, oh, yeah. the yeah, little, sure. oh yeah. And you could, my sister and I would jump in like to try to get the sugary ones because you didn't want to get stuck with like Raisin Bran or something like that. You right. wanted the Lucky Charms, yeah. Cocoa Pops, something like that. Right. Yeah. So this is what's reminding me of. It's bringing me back to my, I hate to say beer's bringing me back to my childhood, but just looking at the box is bringing me back to my childhood. So what do we got going on over there? Well, we, we've got a 15-can uh, a sampler. Uh, a lot of these breweries, and, and we've done this before on the show, uh, have uh, uh, sampler packs, and usually it's a 12. This one is 15, so it, it was irresistible naturally. And uh, this one is from Breckenridge Breweries out in Colorado. And, you know, they range from the, the vanilla porter as far as darkness and full-flavored uh, beers go uh, to, the, to the lighter beers here. I think you've got one in your hand, the agave wheat. And I'm going to crack this. There we go. Uh, the agave wheat. And I mean, it's, it's, in a, it's in a gold sort of can. I have a skeleton, uh, a skull with some wheat in its teeth with a sombrero on. It certainly has a desert feel to it. And here we go, nice and cold. Oh, I'm so thirsty too. Oh, that's good stuff. Is it good? That is really good. Breckenridge Brewery, fine Colorado ales, the agave wheat. That is a 10 right there. All right. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's a hot day. We got to remember it's a hot day. You've been out doing a little- Yard work? Yard work. That's that's the classic uh, beer drinking situation. I should be on a commercial. The agave wheat, I could be out- It it could be like I could be out in the sand, mowing the sand. Yeah. And and then- And you know, uh, Colorado has had uh, uh, a a big beer scene going on, of course. You can remember Coors Beer- and uh, you could just get that at Colorado at one point, Golden, Colorado, and then they made brewery, I think, out out here. And the craft beer scenes kind of mimic that. You've got some really, you got Oscar Blues uh, beer, uh, Dale's Pale Ale is made in Colorado. You have the Great Divide. They make the Titan IPA, which is a really classic IPA. And probably one you've heard of, the New Belgium beers. Have you seen oh, New yeah. Belgium? Mm-hmm. I think they're out of Fort Collins. Okay. And again, like Coors, and I think Oscar Blues, too, they they have breweries now in North Carolina. Now, what's the North Carolina? You, you mentioned that a few times. What yeah. is the North Carolina connection well, to I, West Coast, to I, West Western beers? Yeah, it just seems to be where they go, and I don't know. I mean- Part of the deal with Coors was that, you know, they made a big deal out of the mountain water. Right. And I think maybe when, I think they might have moved to North Carolina. I forget where they're brewing, but again, it might have been the mountain water okay. kind of thing. Well, and there's a big craft brewery scene around Asheville, and that's where the breweries 
of these color ones that started in Colorado have set up down there near, near Brevard, North Carolina, and some other places. Cool. But yeah, I I, uh, I think Breckenridge is a good brewery. Hey, agave go. wheat will not be my last agave wheat. All right. All right. So um, we're going to do War Powers today, but before we do that, um, I have a little new segment we're doing, and I, I'm calling it... I got a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> now you're going to hear about it. That's right. I got some problems with you people, and now it's time for me to get some things off of my chest. And one thing specifically, as I'm cruising social media, and our basically our po- politics come down to sound bites, and the visual equivalent of a soundbite is a meme. And uh, there's lots of them out there. And I think sometimes memes really serve a purpose to get a complex idea or, across rather simply. But please, stop comparing governments, stop comparing policies, stop comparing leaders to Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. Obama, Trump, these people are not Adolf Hitler. Policies of gun control are not Nazi Nazi policies of taking guns away from Jews. There just isn't an equivalency there. And what you're doing is you're trivializing what Nazi Germany was really all about. I have my... um, computer open. I'm looking over some memes right now. Um, I see one with spot the difference. No, I couldn't either. And I see a picture of Hitler with his arm raised in a salute and a picture of uh, Trump waving at somebody. Uh, Here's another one. Donald Trump in 2016 with a picture of Hitler smiling. He's got my vote. Uh, Here's one with Trump's picture slowly morphing into Adolf Hitler. Uh, And it trivializes what Hitler was about. You know, you may not like the fact that he wants to build a wall, or maybe you do support he wants to build a wall, but he's not building concentration camps. He's not building death camps. There's no Treblinka. There's no Sobibor. There's no Belzac. There's no Auschwitz. Um, And how about the criticisms of, uh, you know, uh, the review boards and the Affordable Care Act? They were going to be death, death panels, and you get the idea of, you know, people, I think, knew, uh, know about the Nazis uh, eliminating people with uh, mental and physical defects that could be reproduced. Yeah, it's called were, the T4 program. Yeah, and they're trying to purify uh, the Aryan race, which, you know, nobody really knew exactly what that was, but, uh, but it was in, in Hitler's mind. And you know that's it was just nuts. There's no death panels. It's a, it's an extreme comparison. There's something called Godwin's rule or Godwin's philosophy, and it's was born on the internet years ago. And basically, it says when you start bringing up Adolf Hitler, you've basically killed the conversation because there's nowhere else to go from that. And I would put in Shockey's corollary to that. And Shockey's corollary is as soon as you bring up Hitler, you lose you lose your point. You lose the conversation because you've gone to the extreme. Unless you're comparing Hitler to Pol Pot or Stalin or Mao Zedong, um, there just simply isn't any comparison. I just saw a meme the other day about gun control and how in America, the gun control of people want to take away your guns. If we do this, if you take away our guns, we will be just like the Jews of Europe. Really? But before the Holocaust. Yeah, before the Really? They're going to round me up and they're going to put me in a death camp and they're going to gas me and my family. The idea that the Jews could have defend themselves against the Nazi war machine when it took 
combined nations to defeat this. The Soviet Union, I think, lost up to 12 million people trying to defeat the war machine. Britain lost 400,000. Americans lost 400,000, well, 300,000 in, in, in Europe. It, it's an insult. It's an insult to the Jews who went to the death camps. It's an insult to history. And I guess I should say, please stop doing it. Yeah, uh, when it, it's just such an extreme thing, and and you're right, it's it's a discussion uh, non-starter. It's meant to end a discussion, not a beginning of any kind of fruitful dialogue about what could be actual racism, which could be a bad policy about guns. I mean, those things are up for debate. What the right policy should be about illegal immigrants, that's up for debate. But as soon as you accuse somebody of being just like Hitler. It can't be debate unless you're, and, and you know, unless you're going to take the pro Hitler side, which most people are not going to want to do. Yeah, no, you don't even take. You don't, no one takes the pro Hitler side anyway. So there's my rant. I think next week, I think uh, uh, Jeff Hudson's going to bring one to the table. But there it is. Take it, use it, love it, bury it in the backyard, and hope it grows a tree. All right. So I have a little. Uh, before we get into this week's discussion, I have a little. Uh, this is up. 43 seconds of just a little, I think, teaser for what we're going to talk about. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, to report that renewed hostile actions. My fellow Americans, at 7 o'clock this evening, Eastern Time, air and naval forces of the United States to strike military and security targets in Iraq. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations. But it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed, and the other where you got 150 million people killed. Well, there you go. All right, so we have a couple voices there. Um, Want to take some shots at who you heard there? I think I got the president's side. Got the president's. There was one non-president. Right, so first we had FDR. FDR asking, uh, I think, for a declaration of war after Pearl Harbor was Absolutely. Uh, Heard LBJ. LBJ was absolutely there, Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah, talking about the Vietnam War. I don't think I heard Nixon. I heard Reagan. Reagan, absolutely. That might have been Granada. I think it was Granada. And then there was George W. Bush. There was you there. missed one before George W. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was in there. Talk, okay, and, and Bill Clinton ordered actions in Bosnia, I believe. I think that was the Bosnia speech. Okay, and the, you got Bush, and then the last one is not a president. Matter of fact, it's not even a real person. It is Buck Turgenson from the great movie Doctor Strangelove, and I threw him in there. If you have not seen Doctor Strangelove, I highly recommending uh, recommending getting a copy of that and watching Doctor Strangelove. It's going to fit right into what we're talking about: war powers and how a nation goes to war. And Buck Turgenson just simply wants to go to war. Um, and we have to make a choice between 10 million people or 150 million people. Um, and if you listen to that quote later on, he goes, "Well, I'm not saying we're not going to get our hair mussed, but it's a tough choice." Oh, it's some great scenes in that movie. I think Stanley Kubrick um, does that, and Peter Sellers plays multiple roles in it. It's a fantastic movie, a dark comedy about war-making powers. So let's jump right into this. This is the pool of war-making powers, um, and we're going to do a little bit of the history of war-making powers and then try to pull apart the mess we're in today with how do we go to war. 
Right. And uh, if you've listened to this before, a lot of times we start with the Constitution. And bum, 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 bum. that's where we're going to start today. Like, well, who's supposed to declare war? Well, the Constitution is not ambiguous. Right, I'm going to stop you because I want to give um, yeah. a trivia question okay. that we're going to answer later on. Okay. The trivia question for everybody is when is the last time the United States has declared war? All right, so that answer will come out as we talk, but just think about that one. See if you can pull that up without using Google. Okay, so uh, in Article 1, Section 8, they have something in the Constitution. This is uh, the powers that are given Congress. They're called the delegated powers because we don't have to argue about this. We know Congress has this power because the Constitution says so. There's a list, and here's what it says in the list. Congress shall have the power to declare war. Okay, so there it is. <laughs> I mean, it is short and sweet. It's short and sweet and to the point, uh, but there's really no argument. Now, it also says in Article 2, the president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states, when called into the actual service of the United States. That's an Article 2, which deals with the chief executive. But uh, it says nothing in there about the president taking us to war. And it does say other things about Congress and their uh, power, war-making powers. It says Congress will raise the military, organize the militia, implement the rules of war, such as authorizing letters of mark and reprisal, and defining and punishing piracy. We don't worry about pirates too much anymore, but they're still out there. And it says Congress is also going to have to consent to treaties and improve ambassadors. Anyhow, it gives this huge role, and specifically, it gives Congress the power to declare war, to bring us into a war. Yeah, constitutionally, this is a, about dividing power. We were dividing power between... Um, the federal and state levels, but we're also dividing power within the federal level itself. So the president all by himself cannot decide simply to go to war. Now, he is commander in chief, so he does have the power to make war, which soon as um, war is declared, the president has the authority um, and the responsibility to conduct that war. And the president also has the responsibility to defend the United States against imminent attack. So he can or she can pull the trigger, so to speak, and launch a military offensive if the United States is under threat. Now, that is going to be the, the loophole that you can drive a truck through eventually because exactly when is the country under threat. But never did the founding fathers think that the president all by himself could take us to war for any extended period of time. It was supposed to be a partnership. And you can see this in other ways as well. The president negotiates treaties, not Congress, but the Congress has to approve that treaty. So this was something that the founders were doing was basically taking two pieces of the puzzle and giving a piece to both sides, if you will. And those pieces had to come together in order to form a whole. And that power then could be executed by both parties coming together. Yeah. And part of this is that the, there's a the sense that their collective wisdom is better than one or two individuals making this choice on themselves. But 
people sometimes say, why did they put that commander-in-chief role? What did it mean? And as uh, Matt has already mentioned, one of the reasons was uh, in, in order to allow him or her, uh, him when they wrote the Constitution, to, um, to immediately respond to an attack. Congress, remember, I mean, there was only 13 in the, you know, original states, but you lived in a three-mile-an-hour world, uh, and in Congress, it couldn't be convenient to ask for a declaration of war if the British attacked from Canada or the French attacked from, uh, you know, the, what became the Louisiana Territory. So there was the idea, but but that was that was even expressed at the Constitutional Convention. Roger Sherman of Connecticut uh, said the executive should be able to repel but not to commence war. So, I mean, it's, it's very specific right there. It's, it's, it's n- he's not supposed to start a war. He can repel invaders, but then Congress should be uh, consulted to a- any ongoing uh, strife and warfare. Uh, the two things the commander-in-chief rule uh, did do, uh, it gave civilians control of the military. They right, that's very, important. Very, very... You know, uh, they knew about military coups. They did not want the power of the military in the hands of an unelected official. And the other important thing there is it allowed for a unified command. They had just gone through the revolution. Uh, they had Washington's experience, and he he would had a terrible temper. He was, you know, he had a few flaws, I think, for for a guy of that stature. But he had a terrible temper. And part of that is, you know, he didn't know when he was getting troops and when he was getting <laughs> money for things. And and uh, there there wasn't a unified direction. And the idea is if, if you're going to have a war, you're going to have one centralized leader who will be able to make the decisions in an organized way. Right. So, it's, it's almost like our, our government can change. We are a republic uh, with divided powers. But in times of an emergency – we can become very centralized and allow a very small group of people to run the war-making abilities. That's the president and his advisors. Um, But then that power is taken away, and we revert back to the republic once again. Uh, And if you look throughout history— it works very well, or it worked very well. Uh, World War II is a great example of this um, it working at to its best, where the president is giving these sweeping powers um, to uh, make war, and then with the surrenders in May and August of 1945, um, we slide back to being a republic and having distinct branches of government again where the president simply can't make unilateral decisions anymore. Well, you know, and I always bring up the framers and what they thought and what's in the Federalist Papers and other places. And as uh, James Madison explained uh, uh, that he said, it's necessary to adhere to the fundamental doctrine of the Constitution that the power to declare war is fully and exclusively vested in the legislature. So the power to get us into a war, Madison says, is Congress's. All right, well, how about another uh, author of the Federalist Papers, Hamilton? He argued that a monarch and a president were two different things in regard to the power to conduct wars. He said this, it would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the land and naval forces, 
Well, that of the British king extends to the declaring of war and to the raising and regulating of fleets and armies, all of which by the Constitution would appertain of the legislature. Again, this is unambiguous about who's supposed to start the war with our framers. It's Congress. Right. Uh, Jefferson, and Jefferson and Hamilton didn't agree about much, but he said this. Of course, you know, Jefferson's the great writer. He says, we have already given one effectual check to the dog of war by transferring the power of letting him loose. Basically, again, meaning the person who is going to conduct the war is not the person who is going to get us into the war, the branch of government. That's going to be Congress. So, and, and, you know, we did get away from it, and we'll talk about reasons why we got away from it, but the simple logic behind that, I think, in a republic is this. Our framers knew that wars cost a heck of a lot of money and that people throughout history— you know, got killed them, killed in them, and a lot of times with no uh, good outcome for either side. So, the idea is this: the the branch of government that's closest to the people, the House of Representatives, were the only directly elected body uh, back when the Constitution was written. If you're going to take Americans' money for a war, and take the even more important treasure of uh, at that time sons, but now our sons and daughters' lives. It should be the people close to the people. It should be the branch of government that is directly connected to the people making that decision. That's the simple logic behind that. And the system worked rather well early. Um, We've declared war 11 times in our nation's history in five different engagements. Uh, The first time we did it was in the War of 1812. Um, Hardly a unanimous vote. Uh, Madison... Uh, the vote was 1913 in the Senate and 79-49 in the House of Representatives. Um, the Mexican War uh, was not unanimous. That was um, 1846, 40 to 2, and 173 to 14. Uh, then we have the Spanish-American War in 1898, not unanimous, 42-35 and 310 to um, 6. And that takes us through up to the 20th century. So America only fights three declared war wars from its inception up to the 20th century. Um, and the system works well. There are some parts of the Constitution that didn't age real well with us. Um, and I want to talk a couple, about a couple of these because I think the war-making power also did not age well. The first one, and these are two minor ones before we get into the war-making powers. Uh, When the president is sworn into office, uh, when the Constitution was first written, he was elected in November, and he wasn't sworn in until March 4th. And that made sense in the time period. Uh, Over the spring, traveling through the winter and the spring was very difficult um, to get all the votes counted and brought back to Washington. Not a whole lot was happening. And to wait that long certainly wasn't a problem. Uh, until modernity and the the modern era. Um, And now you had this lame duck president the whole way through November till March. Uh, FDR becomes the first president to be take office in January instead of March. Um, A second one is the state of the union address. The state of the union address made sense in um, 
the 18th century and the 19th century when communication was rather slow, that there was a real need for the president to inform members of Congress on the State of the Union. Um, it's long since ceased to do what it's originally intended to do, and now really it's just a rah, rah, rah propaganda speech uh, that the president gets to make a speech once a year and talk to both houses of Congress, and it's televised all over the place. But and then it, the members of his party yell like yeah, crazy people, yeah, and the yeah. other ones sit there and frown or— you know, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not enlightening or you know, no. it's not, you're right. It's not doing what it was designed to do at right. this point. And, and the war making power is, it falls into this same category for me because how war was made in the 17 and 1800s is in the 1900s even is not, well, not, uh, excuse that 20th century things change and how war was made in the 17 and 1800s, this slow process of a deliberative body talking about going to war, making a vote, and then saying, okay, president, you now are going to make war, and then we're going to sign a treaty, and the war is going to be over, and then that power is going to go back to us, uh, and you're no longer going to get to control the military like that anymore, and we're going to kind of put the gun back in the holster. The gun never goes back in the holster anymore. Well, yeah, and you know our declared wars, as you mentioned, uh, the War of 1812, Mexican-American War, Spanish-American War, World War One and World War Two. Now, I noticed something about all these wars, and this is an important thing I noticed. We won, <laughs> and uh, and again, I think you see another um, uh, the wisdom of the the framers in this is that when you get Congress, if you get these representatives of all the states and and the the, the areas where Americans live, and they agree to go to war, you get the country behind you. And when you get the country behind you, you kick butt. And uh, so I think there was uh, some wisdom there. Uh, you know, Lincoln never asked for a declaration of war, and that's simply because his theory was there couldn't be a Confederate States because you can't leave the Union. Right. So a declaration of war would have uh, Philosophically, it would ha it didn't make it, it would not have made right. his case because he he called them states that were in rebellion, right? Um, and that was very important to him that these were not this was not a separate country. So you can't declare war on yourself in a way. So yeah, so we can't we can throw even though that was America's by far America's uh, worst war in terms of casualties and cons and probably the most significant in terms of consequences. It's uh, you know we can't throw that in there because it was a, a civil war, but. What happens is, as after World War II, as Matt mentions, we go into a different world, and now we're in the world that's shaped by the last event of World War II. Right. Um, so let's before we get to that, let's uh, talk about the trivia question: the last time the United States has officially declared war, and who was it against? Um, the year, my friends, is 1942. And it is Romania. So the last time the United States has declared war is 1942 against Romania, 73-0 uh, in the Senate and 361-0 to 0 
in the house. So they came in on the Axis side in 1942. Right. On that same day, so there was- the Romanians were not exercising what we would call foresight. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, by June, yeah, they, they should have read the, some of the writing on the wall. The three countries we declared war on the same day, but the Romanian vote was last, was Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania. And since then, the United States has not, well- we, we haven't been at war since 1942, so it's a good thing. It's been a real— um, Haven't had a declared war since No, I, I, from what my reading, I don't think we've been engaged in any military conflict since 1942. Oh, okay. I yeah. mean, yeah, I yeah, assume, because yeah. when I Googled declarations of war for America, this is the only graph that came up. So I'm assuming that that's That all. was it, man. That's it. So this podcast is going to be short. Somebody <laughs> said something about Vietnam and Korea— I don't know what they're talking about because that wasn't on my little chart. So, oh, here, here we go. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Are you having another agave wheat? No, I'm not. I'm going with the vanilla porter. Okay. Oh, just. It smells oh, rich, it doesn't does. it? Dan, I tell you what. God. This is awesome stuff right here. Okay. So, what happens, the last event of World War II is oh, dropping the atomic. Is that a good one? Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. The atomic bombs mm. on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. August 6th, August 9th. The war ends. And, you know, there's uh, Truman uh, had to make the decision as commander-in-chief, but it was, of course, it was a declared war. And it brings that uh, declared war to the end. There's famous pictures of the battleship Missouri yep. and General MacArthur, I think, is there when the Japanese representatives of the Japanese government Sign the unconditional surrender of the Japanese people. And, you know, I guess that's, as you said, well, is that it? Is that the history, end of uh, warfare uh, and Amer Americans' involvement in warfare? And, of course, uh, it's not. The hol the gun never goes back in the holster after this. Right. We uh, The tradition in America had been to have small standing armies. The framers were afraid of them, as we I mentioned. It's one reason they made sure a civilian commanded the armed forces, they knew they took a lot of money. But World War II required a two-front war in the Pacific Theater and the European. It required a huge military investment. It required a huge investment in technology. Eventually, Eisenhower is going to call uh, this combination of money that has to go to the military, the size of the military, the constant development of better weapons. He's going to label it the military-industrial complex. And so we have this huge military, and we've been in two world wars, one and two, and we decide we're not going to go back. We're not going to shrink that thing back down that far because we might have to go to war. Again. And it's amazing how fast all this turns. Um, you're talking about just seven years ago, if you go before Pearl Harbor, um, it, Roosevelt would have gotten us into World War II a lot quicker. Uh, he had programs like cash carry and then lend-lease. Um, there was even a, a proposal for a new amendment to the Constitution that was called the Ludlow Amendment, that there would have to be a national referendum taken uh, to go to war. I mean, that's how much Americans did not want to get into World War II. Then Pearl Harbor changes all of that. And if we were going to play rewind, if history was going to repeat itself, what was going to happen in 1945 is basically we would have demilitarized, we'd have shrunk our military down to very small and had a very small professional military. But that's not what happened. Americans 
now were okay with a large standing military because there was another threat on the horizon, and that was the communist threat and a threat to Europe. And we see this as a very real threat to us. Um, and we spend lots of money, lots of energy early on with with what's going to become known as a containment policy with Truman, um, which is going to pull us then directly into the Korean War in 1950. Right. And by containment, uh, the Truman Doctrine was that, it, I think it started in Turkey and Greece, but the idea was right. we're going to provide aid to any country resisting a communist takeover. So Turkey and Greece, then we had the Marshall Plan. Right, and and that was to, to make, uh, rebuild Europe. So communism wasn't appealing. I mean, if right. you have food in your stomach and your kids can go to school and, you know, your trains are getting built and running on time, then you don't tend to want to be, uh, give up all your freedom to be part of a, a communist uh, nation. Uh, but the idea was that we were going to contain communism. We were going to fight the spread. And you do need to know a little bit about the official doctrine of communism as expressed by Marx. But they, they, uh, communists felt that, that, that there was going to be a revolution of the poor people, the proletariat everywhere. And it becomes the duty of communist nations to support this. So there's an ideological commitment that they do have to— uh, overthrowing capitalist countries. It's expansionist in nature. Right. And it wants to expand. And the idea that there's going to be a workers' revolution, it wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when. It was going to be the natural cycle. Capitalism is naturally going to fail. And when it does fail, communism will be there to pick up the pieces. So um, if we go back then, before if we go back before 1950, and we contrary on 1949, Two huge things happened in 1949. First is the Soviet Union gets the atomic bomb uh, well ahead of schedule that we thought there were spies at Los Alamos for the Soviets. So they were getting nuclear secrets and China goes communist in 1949. So now the largest, the most populous nation on earth falls to communism with Truman as president of the United States. Um, Becomes very frightening. There's a red scare in the United States and people are accusing their neighbors of being communist and uh, people are uh, absolutely frightened by this. So when North Korea invades South Korea, when communists controlled North Korea invades uh, free South Korea, um, the United States through the United Nations is going to end up intervening in that conflict for three years. And without getting too far into it, um, it is a victory for the United States when you look at the context of why we went to war, we went to war to contain communism. Um, now, we could talk about crossing back over the parallel, the 38th parallel, and getting close to China, and then the Chinese coming in. and Mass wave attacks. Right, and, and the mess that Korea did not have to turn into, uh, primarily because of MacArthur. But in the Although end— some would Arthur argue that if MacArthur was allowed to go into China and fight China— of course, there would have been a huge war, and who knows how that. Well, would he end. wanted to drop nukes. Yeah, and 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 we don't know how that would end it out. And and people have to remember this is very shortly after World War II. There wasn't an appetite in this country for another world war. No, there wasn't. And when the 
treaty is not, where there's no treaty, when the armistice is signed, uh, the 38th parallel becomes the dividing line between North and South, which is still there today. Uh, and pretty much that was the same parallel that was there before the war. So this is a victory for the United States. Well, communism is contained. It's contained. It's not a glamorous victory, like on the battleship Missouri where you're signing a peace treaty and the boys get to come home and to waving flags. Nope, we still got troops in Korea. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're still waiting for that battleship um, ceremony to take place. But it is a victory. Um, and you have to remember Korea to understand Vietnam because this is also an Asian expansion of communism. The policy that worked in Korea is going to be tried in Vietnam to try to stop the spread of communism. Right. And now you have the famous domino theory. Oh, good God, the domino that theory. If, if one uh, a country, uh, even though it might be small, would fall to communist rule, it would uh, have a domino effect. Then the next country then uh, would be infiltrated by communists from that country, and that country would fall, and so on, and so on, and so on. So um, after World War II, uh, a lot of nations feel that they are going to be granted their uh, freedom uh, from colonial rule. The colonial powers have been beaten up, uh, and uh, it. Ho Chi Minh, who is a uh, leader in Vietnam, feels this way, but he is uh, is disappointed because the French tried to reassert their rule in Vietnam, and that's the the genesis of the war in Vietnam. Uh, Ho Chi Minh is a communist. Uh, most people believe he was a communist. Uh, became a communist. Uh, he became a communist before World War One. Because it was the Communist Party that believed in self-determination. Oh, yeah. Ho Chi Minh was at the, was at the Versailles yeah. um, asking for self-determination in 1917. You know what I didn't know? 1918, and I, I'm sorry. I, until I read a, a book uh, this summer called A Bright Shining Lie, John Paul Van and the American Experience of Vietnam. It's the first time I heard this, that even after World War II, and Ho Chi Minh was our ally in World War II, because we, we were both fighting the Japanese. Right. That he sent uh, through, uh, uh, I think it was Chinese contacts to the State Department, uh, a letter to to our State Department, and he said that uh, Vietnam, he he thought might be a, could be a protectorate of the United States, and I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, and 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 used the phrase it, uh, American capital that would be a a welcome American capital. So you think again of, of what we said this war was about, which right. was fighting communism. There's no doubt Ho Chi Minh was a communist, but you know American capital is heavily invested in Vietnam now. Right. Your shoes might be made there, and your you know your T-shirt or your right. your jeans. So uh, th- this is the thing that you know to me in my lifetime the greatest tragedy uh, of my lifetime in American politics is Vietnam. Uh, at the end of this war, we're going to have 58,000 people, Americans killed, uh, at least 2 million Vietnamese. And this number's all over the place. Yeah, we don't know. But, but they're high. Pro- probably at least 2, yeah. two million. Uh, c- uh, countryside denuded with Agent Orange. Our country divided. And, of course, Vietnam didn't start with the declaration of war. It started with something called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. Right, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. I want to back up just a little bit, back to Eisenhower. Eisenhower, um, his 
idea of containment was basically through strategic air command. And he believed in the heavy bombers and nukes were going to keep people in line. Um, well, one reason he did the, uh, the support of the uh, interstate highway system. Right. Is to, so that nuclear missiles could be transferred around the United States in case of a nuclear war, and the overpasses were all whatever right. they were. And a lot of people don't know that they seventeen thought, feet high or something, so the nukes could get underneath it. So all the military can move. Now, when Kennedy came into office, he did not like this idea of relying on strategic air command, and he came up with the idea of called flexible response. That the United States then would basically look at each. Uh, situation uniquely and then make a decision on how to deal with that specific incident. Now, that sounds um, logical, but the fatal flaw in that is that you dramatically lower the bar to when the United States will actually be engaged uh, militarily. And that is part of the problem, what's going to happen in Vietnam. So let's talk about the Gulf of Tonkin and the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which really didn't happen. Um, We know now that the the destroyer uh, Turner Joy and the yeah, Maddox. Right. Yeah. Um, supposedly they were under attack from the North Vietnamese. In international waters. In international waters. Um, and if you listen to the radio uh, broadcast, not the radio, but the radio transmissions between them, uh, missiles in the water, missiles in the water, we're doing you know this maneuver and that maneuver, mi- miss- the missile barely, the torpedo barely misses. I mean, it's rarely intense. Um, and... LBJ uses this then to go after a bom- uh, and retaliate for that mis- that attack that really never happened. Uh, Congress gives him permission uh, through a resolution called the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, and this Gulf of Tonkin resolution apparently was made of some sort of rubber because it is used to stretch and cover the entire Vietnam War. Well, what it said is it gave the president permission to respond to any t- attacks on American forces in in Vietnam. And, of course, the response that Johnson would give over and over again is, well, we have forces there. We need more forces to protect those forces there. (laughs) And those forces go there, and they're attacked, or they're not sufficient to uh, neutralize the Viet Cong at that point later on, the North Vietnamese Army. So there's more forces that are committed, and you get what's called escalation uh, to the to the end, you have a very small country and over a half a million American soldiers uh, in that country. Uh, and so, and now one of the reasons we went by way of resolution and by way of UN resolution in Korea and uh, this congressional resolution is we're very reluctant now to declare war on, let, for instance, in this case, it would be declaring war in North Vietnam. But North Vietnam is an ally of not only China, but the Soviet Union. And of course, the Soviet Union has nuclear weapons. So there's always this idea in the Cold War that if we declare war, eventually someone might declare basically, at first the Soviet Union, later on China, when they get nuclear weapons, they could eventually, if we declare war on one of their allies, or in their case, if they declare war on one of our allies, we'll be drawn into it and you can have a nuclear confrontation. So that is one reason we get away from asking Congress for a declaration of war. We don't want that to happen. No. And Vietnam um, starts becoming its own monster, right? 
L, basically we start playing not to lose. Uh, we don't want to be the country that lost China. I don't want to be the president that lost Vietnam. Uh, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, had this idea basically slowly escalating in Vietnam and leading, leaning on North Vietnam. And eventually, North Vietnam would collapse, completely misread North Vietnamese and their um, attitude and their willingness to continue this war. Um you weren't going to drop to get to put things in perspective m- more bombs were dropped more explosives were dropped in North Vietnam than all of World War II combined um this idea that you were going to bomb North Vietnam back to the stone age and somehow save South Vietnam from communism it, it, you really start seeing huge cracks in the containment policy and and, and they misread Ho Chi Minh they misread Ho Chi Minh and fought the Japanese, right, and then he'd fought the French, and then he's fighting the Americans. And then the same way with uh, the Vietnamese people, they had fought those. They had fought Chinese people before this. They're a fiercely independent group, and they were going to be independent. We saw it as monolithic communism. Yes, we did, which was an incorrect way to see that. And actually, after this, I mean, Nixon opened recognizes China and Russia don't have, aren't monolithic a group promoting. And, and he, him and Kissinger take advantage of it. So, you know, we had to learn the hard way. But in Vietnam, I think, becomes the classic example of a war that is not declared and it's not one, but also one that rips the country into this idea where all our representatives are going to get together and we're going to make a decision about going to war and the evidence is going to be out for the. That doesn't happen. And when the going gets tough in Vietnam and it, it, information comes out in the Pentagon Papers and oh, yeah. that, that people, the government has been lying about the progress of Vietnam, it rips the country in two. And you have huge demonstrations. You have young people against the older people. You have, uh, unfortunately, people being turned off of the military. And as my father, who by this, well, he was still in the war, at the, still in the military at the time the Vietnam started and retired while it was still going on. But he would say, well, don't, you know, you can't blame the military. Blame those damn politicians and like uh, other things that I found out uh, in life, my dad was right about that. I mean, the military was there trying to to fight this war for political ends. But anyhow, you have this this thing that just worked out poorly, and people know it. And at the end of Vietnam, the Congress passes the War Powers Act of right. 1973. And- so there is this after Vietnam and after the huge mistake of Vietnam and. Uh, 58,000 Americans, and as Jeff said, God knows how many North Vietnamese are killed. And South uh, Vietnamese. Yeah. So, what did I say? South North Vietnamese. Okay. Um, there is this desire to try to go back and try to contain this this genie, to put the genie back in the bottle. There has to be a way to salvage um, the separation of powers that Congress declares war and that the president makes war. And as you pointed out, 1973, we get a joint resolution, the War Powers Act, it's called. Uh, Nixon vetoes it. And in uh, a spirit of bipartisanship, uh, Congress overrides that veto. And the War Powers Act becomes 
uh, uh, becomes uh, law. And I want to read the first part of this, what the purpose of the War Powers Act was. It is the purpose of this joint resolution to fulfill the intent of the framers of the Constitution of the United States and to ensure that the collective judgment of both the Congress and the President will apply to the introduction of United States armed forces into hostilities. So their attempt is try to bring back a constitutional concept to going to war. Yeah, Congress should be involved in that. Congress should be involved. But um, the presidents uh, have generally ignored that, and we don't know uh, if the Supreme Court would uphold the Gulf of Tonkin resolution if if the president would commit. Excuse me, the the War Powers Act. If we got involved, and and here's also what presidents do, they they get us into a situation. They, uh, for instance, in in Iraq, there'll be many soldiers placed around Iraq waiting for go ahead, uh, and then and just like in Vietnam there there's soldiers in Vietnam by the time the Gulf of Tonkin resolution comes around and if if the president asks for this resolution or in the case of Iraq an authorization to use military force congress looks like traitors if they don't do it right i mean congress looks like well you're betraying the troops in the field cuz the president's already taken the initiative to put the troops in harm's way yeah that's the argument that it's you can hear all the time that it's congress that controls the purse strings no Congress, no Congress is going to pull money or pull funding from troops that are in the field. Um, so it becomes almost that aspect of it almost becomes um, impotent. You, the Congress simply can't do that. So the War Powers Act basically says the president, uh, if Congress does not give him approval, basically has 90 days to play in the sandbox. Um, he has 60 days to do what he wants to do. And then when Congress does not approve it, he has 30 days to pull these people home. So he has 60 days to play in the sandbox. Uh, Presidents do not like this. Uh, Probably every president has thought it to be unconstitutional. We'll never know because the Supreme Court is never going to hear the case. Um, Number one, to to go against a federal statute, uh, you need something called standing. Somebody has to be a victim. uh, And who is the victim of the War Powers Act. Well, it's going to be someone who's a foreigner, and that person would not have any power in our federal courts. And also, the Supreme Court does not want to get involved in a dispute between the two other branches of government. So most likely, the War Powers Act is with us for an extended period of time because the courts aren't going to step in. Um, And it seems to have sort of settled into a... I don't even want to call it. It's, It's almost like a... To a couple doesn't really like each other, but doesn't want to get a divorce, but they don't want to split up because of the kids. You know, it's working, but not working. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and 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 they don't. The the presidents and and, and let's take our our last big intrusion. We already talked about the tragedy of Vietnam, but we've had another more recent uh, tragedy, and that was the second war in Iraq. Now, the first uh, intervention in the Persian Gulf War did accomplish the objective of kicking Iraq out of Kuwait and did so with a minimum loss of American life. It was handled by George H.W. Bush, and most people would say it was handled very well as far as that incursion. Very limited scope. Very limited scope. We had a specific objective. Uh, We had allies, our old allies of Britain and France, 
uh, were involved in this as well as some, and we got he got Arab countries to to sign on to this, and he got Japanese funding, so it didn't bankrupt us. These wars cost trillions of dollars, but then we come to nine eleven. Uh, we're we're attacked on nine eleven, and we're attacked basically by citizens of Saudi Arabia. I think they're fourteen out of the eighteen right. attackers, and somehow we end up in Iraq. In Iraq, and uh, y- you know. There are things, especially said by Dick Cheney, who was vice president this time, that linked Iraq uh, to the attacks on 9-11, even though they never had anything to do with it. Oh, and, and that, it, was, that was a drumbeat, man. Yeah. Was ba- yeah. They were banging that drum, Iraq 9-11, Iraq 9-11. And, and maybe Iraq could give a, a weapons of mass destruction, including as— uh, as Condoleezza Rice said, and George uh, Bush alluded to, including a a nuclear weapon. We don't want a smoking gun to be a mushroom, mushroom cloud. Mushroom cloud, and and uh, and then so uh, the the Congress passes an authorization to use military force. So they are authorizing this war ahead of time. Again, it's sort of that gray area now, where right. Congress isn't declaring war. Uh, it allows a lot of congressmen to be cowards because they don't have to take the blame if something goes right. wrong. Well, the president asked me, and uh, and we go into I- Iraq, and we find he has no uh, Saddam Hussein has no uh, operational uh, weapons of mass destruction, and that was you know people argue about this uh, today, but that was, we had captured the major scientists in their weapons program. There was something called the Iraq Survey Group that studied this question. What was the guy, what was the name of the man who, I remember his name, he was from Sweden, he was from Norway. What was the name of the inspector that well, went he, into Hans Blix, maybe? Han Blix. That's right, it. He Hans was there Blix. before. Exactly. And the UN inspectors weren't finding anything, right. which they used, the Bush administration, well, they're not finding anything. That means they're hiding them really good. Right. Oh, yeah. But this is us. And so now we have almost 4,000 Americans killed, many more wounded, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis killed, and there were no weapons of mass destruction. So again, we have an undeclared war. Uh, leading to a bad result. And we, we end up having to occupy, getting in a fight between the Sunnis and the Shias. And, you know, it was just, uh, and, and they had, uh, the people planning the war thought this would be uh, a war, a, a place in the Middle East where they, the religion wasn't going to be uh, as influential, but it tur- that turns out to be incorrect. And so you have another mess. And that gets us back to what are we going to do about this stuff? I mean, are are we going to continue to allow the president? Just uh, a week ago, Trump, for the second time, makes a buy, has American missiles attack uh, Syria because the Syrian leader used uh, poison gas. Or but but how gas. is that? How is that a threat to the United States? Well, I don't know if it is a threat to the United States. You know, and, and the one part of me is like, well, fine. Go ahead and do that, but it's certainly not what our framers intended. No, not even a little bit. That's yeah, like you know, if if there was any kind of gas used by a country in the United States and Trump could prevent that by attacking, and then our framers might say, yeah, well, that's that's right. We want quick action, and that's why we made you commander in chief. But not the idea of attacking 
even though he's a ruthless, you know, aside a horrible man, you know, I don't. There's no question he's a horrible human being, and he does horrible stuff. But you have a hard time, regardless of how you feel morally about the attack, um, to try to stop the gassing of people. There is no constant. Th- this framers would not have even begun to envision that you should attack a sovereign nation for what they are doing inside their borders. That somehow this was an imminent threat to the United States. The founders would have said, of course you have to go to Congress before you do this. Well, something like that. And, right. and the same way, you know, when Bill Clinton, uh, you know, he he said he regretted, I think, what happened in Rwanda, that he didn't intervene right. in, in Rwanda. But the Constitution would have given him no power to intervene in Rwanda. I know the, the Tutsis and the Hutus, it was a horrible thing. And I think a lot of Americans, even including myself at times, can look at this and and go, geez, we have this awesome military machine. Why don't we go over there and just fix it? But I'm we're not. I'm not taught when we talk about the Constitution. There, there's. Uh, they knew that there would be bad things. The framers knew there were bad things happening other places. Uh, but they had this. You know, it's the check and balance system. You have to go to Congress if you want to go overseas and use the military. Right. That's just very clear. Um, there's, there's, you know, for, for my part, I can end this, uh, discussion and, and, and maybe this will help clarify. I'm a little bit too young to, if I, I had to go through the draft, but, uh, I, I, I wasn't, my number wasn't uh, low enough to get called up, but it was after Vietnam. Um, I had, my brother was old enough and, and my other, uh, aunts and uncles had cho- children that were draft age during Vietnam. And I found out later that my grandfather went to my mom and, and went to my other aunts and uncles and said, if you have a kid that is going to be drafted and going to Vietnam, I'll send, I'll give them some money and they can go to Canada. And, you know, some people, God, what, what was your, was your grandpa? He must've been a real liberal guy. My grandpa was not a liberal guy. <laughs> he was a f- small farmer in Indiana. If anybody would define in actual terms what conservatism is, I would say it would be my grandpa. He didn't take a dime from anybody, made everything on his own labor. But he's also a really well-read guy. And he would, in fact, he had to go to different libraries because he would, in these small towns in Indiana he'd go to, he'd run out of books he wanted to read and he would go. <laughs> and that's eventually where he met, he met his fifth and last wife. <laughs> was a librarian of this small town. But anyhow, he knew what the Constitution said. And he thought, and and he was correct. Uh, even though he only had an eighth grade education, very well read, very well informed. This is an illegal war. And his idea was his grandkids weren't going to die in an illegal, messed up war. It, it was absolute cons- constitutional conservatism informed his belief. So, yeah, I, I, my, my final s- statement on this is I think the War Powers Resolution, as flawed as it is, uh, is about as good as we're going to get. Um, I think that sometimes you don't, uh, you know, you can't be with the one you love, so you love the one you're with. And I think that's what this War Powers Resolution is. We can't be with the one we love, and that is the Constitution, because the Constitution simply isn't applicable to 21st century problems, at least in the aspect of going to war. So we have to rely on this flawed system. Uh, is it perfect? No. Um, but it's. I don't know of a better um, 
I don't know of a better alternative that Congress could come up with. So in the end, there is no final answer here to this on what on what really is the solution to this problem. Um, it's an evolving thing, and maybe 10 years we'll figure it out, but who knows. But anyway, guys, thanks for hanging out the whole time with us. Uh, feel free, like I said, get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we'll see you later. Bye now.